everyone to the Wisconsin Horticulture Update for August 21st. I'm Barb Larson. I'm the horticulture educator in Kenosha County. Let's start out with county roll call. So how about A through K? No one from A through K counties? All right. Well, let's try K through R. This is Walt in Portage County. Hi, Walt. Good morning. And Diana in Pierce County. Good morning, Diana. And anyone else? How about the last part of the alphabet? Or anyone that has logged in since and hasn't gotten on yet? Okay, well, we might have a short county report this morning. So let's go ahead and get started then. Walt, you want to kick us off? What's going on in Portage? My rain gauge recorded three inches of rain this week, which is pretty nice, especially in the Portage County sand areas. I had two verifications of late blight on potato and tomato in homeowners' gardens this week, and there's probably more yet that have not yet been reported. The spotted wing drosophila has still been an issue. Master gardeners are calling in with what's going on with that, but the biggest thing this week is the late blight issues. Okay, thank you. Diana? On the west. All right. Well, we also had three and a quarter inches of rain on Tuesday. It just rained and rained and rained. We've been used to that because we've had that all summer in this part of the state. We also have confirmed late blight in St. Croix County, and I'm pretty sure we've got some here in Pierce, too, that I think the sample's on its way to you, Brian, to verify. But this is new for us because we haven't had it in years past, at least not to the point where we were actually hearing about it. So late blight is here. Spotted wing disophila is here. That's been here, and I think people are just kind of giving up on that. And most of what we're getting for questions are weed and plant ID sorts of things. Lots of huge weeds. We had our biggest weed contest at our fair last week, and we had several 12-foot-tall ones come in. So questions about invasive, a lot of invasive weed sorts of things, and then seem to be problems with our vine crops, pollination issues and powdery mildews and stuff like that. So they're kind of topping the question list. So that's about it. Okay, thank you. Have any other counties joined us? I'm here in Racine County. This is Patty, but I don't have a report. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> okay, well, welcome, Patty. <laughs> Otherwise, I was going to send you an email. Hey. <laughs> Any other counties? All right. Well, in Kenosha, we can at least share that here in the southeast, we finally had some rain, and in the southern part also, closer to where I live, which we were extremely happy to get as is typical of these summer thunderstorm kinds of things, the range of the amount of rainfall varied greatly based on where you were under the thunderstorm. But for many people, that was a real benefit. We actually are starting to see the lawns come out of dormancy. They're starting to green up a little bit now, and we're starting to get some regrowth. So continue here to get a lot of calls on dead and dying ash trees like we've had all summer. And we're also continuing with some different kinds of fruit that aren't completely filling out. Some end rots in fruits, usually blossom end rot. Leaf diseases continue to show up in the trees. And like Diana said, a lot of weed ID, plant ID this year. So I would say pretty similar to what we've been seeing all along. 
Do we have any other counties that have joined us and would like to give a report? Hi, Bob. This is BJ here from Brown County. Kind of joined in a little late. Great. What's going on in Brown County, BJ? Well, this past week, we also received some quite a bit of rain. It was a great relief for us again. It's been a little bit cooler. The grass are greening up really well, and so that was a really a blessing for us. This past week, we've been seeing a lot of activity of May-June beetle grubs. They're about a more than an inch in size right now. People are walking in, noticing their lawns being damaged by the skunks and raccoons and wondering what's happening up, and some of the clients bringing up some grub samples here. We're also noticing the first and second insult stage of Japanese beetle grubs along with it too, so that's been very interesting to see both these grubs at the same time. Other than that, a lot of plant ID type of questions we've been noticing, and as usual with the rain, it also released a lot of fungal diseases. People are noticing quite a bit of the early blight disease here on tomatoes. It's taking up a quite a bit toll. Also, some slime mold issues I've been seeing, and last week I did see the first case of hot spot on maples too. So that's pretty much about it. Okay, great. One last call. Any other county updates? Okay, let's move to the specialist update. Brian, you want to share what's going on in the plant clinic? Sure. Lots of vascular wilts this week. Oak wilts confirmed in several counties. Verticillium wilts on catalpa and smoke tree, not terribly unusual for those particular hosts. Also, some Dutch elm disease around the state as well, so nothing out of the ordinary with any of those, but it's always fun to see those growing out in culture. A lot of leaf diseases, anthracnose, tobacco leaf spot on oak trees, and then some apple scab on crab apple. I saw a fair amount of that as I've been around the state the last week. On fruit crops, they did have a sample come in from the northwest that had bitter pit slash cork spot. It's kind of a calcium deficiency-related issue where the internal tissue of the apple fruits gets kind of a blecky sort of brown discoloration. It can be in streaks or small spots, but it just makes the apples look quite unpalatable when you cut open the fruits. And we do have a fact sheet on that if you're interested in reading more about it. A little bit of downy mildew on grape that came in from the West Madison Ag Research Station. Also, diplodia shoot blight and canker, both on juniper and Austrian pine. Again, not necessarily unusual, but certainly been seeing a fair amount of that this summer. And then, of course, all of the fun on vegetable crops, in particular, a lot of late blight. We've had late blight on potatoes from La Crosse and Portage County, late blight on tomatoes from La Crosse, Marathon, Portage, Walworth, and Wood Counties. Also some early blight on potato, septoria leaf spot on tomato. And then I did pick up a little Cercospora disease on potato leaves as well. This one oftentimes moves in along with early blight. Hard to tell the difference between symptoms. I just happened to pick up on it because I was looking for sporulation on the leaf surface. And then I did have some sweet corn samples that came in that were having some problems with stock rot. I see this more commonly in field corn, but it can go to sweet corn as well. You'll see discoloration oftentimes near the base of the stalks on the outside of the stalk. Or if you see the plants lodge and cut open the stalks, oftentimes there'll be discoloration inside. There's a fungus called Colitoptricum that causes an anthracnose stock rot. That also has a leaf phase, so it'll cause leaf symptoms as well, this generic browning of leaf tissue. And then a disease called gibberella stalk rot, which is caused by a fusarian species. Interestingly, this one can cause an ear rot as well. And also, if you happen to plant wheat, it's a pathogen on wheat as well. It causes what's called scab or fusarium head blight. And that's kind of it for the week. It's been busy, but not overly so in terms of samples. Any questions from anyone? Brian, this is Diana. I have a question about verticillium wilt. 
do Wing Euonymus and Gold Flame Spirea, are they susceptible? Spirea, I think, technically, yes. I'd have to double-check on that, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's a listed host. The Euonymus, I've never been able to get verticillium out of that particular host, although I've been very suspicious of verticillium. And it may be one of these plants that technically can become infected and where we do see symptoms that it's very difficult to culture. So it wouldn't surprise me, but like I said, I've never cultured it out of that particular type of shrub. All right, thanks. Yeah, I think I reported last week that we did have a potential new host for verticillium. We got it out of a Durka plant, so we'll be trying to complete Cook's postulates on that over the next year or so. Plus, we're working with three other potential new hosts that we recovered verticillium from last year. Those are, again, Heptacodium, Wafer Ash, Telia, and then Buttonbush, Cephalanthus. And by the way, Patty, I still have not cultured verticillium out of your Heptacodium. We're still watching it, but it's not looking good yet again. I was just going to ask you that very question because the tree has gotten to the point where I need to take it out. If you're going to remove it, send me about the bottom foot of the trunk or at least a slice out of that bottom trunk and we'll try culturing from there. Okay, we'll do. It's quite interesting. On certain hosts, when I look for verticillium, I prefer to try to get it out of trunk tissue. Tilia or basswood is one where I can see a lot of branch dieback and not recover the fungus from branches. But if I get a trunk section from the base of the tree, I can usually get it out of that tissue. So, Brian, does that mean then that it's only colonizing lower in the vascular system, down in the trunk? Yeah, that's my interpretation of that, and that makes sense in terms of how it can function in terms of causing symptoms because it blocks vascular tissues. So it could be active very low in a tree and cause a lot of branch dieback up in the top of the tree. So and that can be the case for other types of vascular wilts as well. That's oftentimes why when we're testing for oak wilt, If we get a negative, we will request a second set of branches from another section of the tree, or if they're going to remove the tree, a segment from the trunk of the tree to try to culture, because particularly with oak wilt, because it can come in through root graft, it could be colonizing the lower portion of the trunk, blocking all of that vascular tissue, and yet you wouldn't see it in the branches. Okay, interesting. Other questions for Brian? I have another one. So white pine gets armillaria. Are the symptoms where the tree just dies back, or do you know, does the tree kind of get thin, yellowy needles, maybe smaller than normal needles, and that kind of thing, and then finally dies? My understanding of our malaria is it tends to be a relatively slow death, so it's not going to be instantaneous the way we tend to see verticillium or something like that come in, where there's a very rapid branch dieback. I saw a talk about our malaria several years ago at a diagnostician's meeting in Missouri, and the person who was talking about it said that oftentimes the trees become infected when they go under stress. So if there's a drought, then they become more prone to infection, and then once the drought is alleviated by some rain, the fungus is not able to colonize as well, and so the trees tend to stabilize. And then when they go through another period of stress, then the fungus is able to colonize some more, and there's a decline in the tree And then, again, the conditions get better, so the tree stabilizes. So it's kind of a stepwise decline in the tree over time. What I would look for, if you're suspicious of our malaria, would be the honey mushrooms that will be produced around the base or in the root zone of the tree. And if you see any unusual mushrooms, just get them in for us to identify. If you find some loose bark on the tree and can peel that off, I would look for a mycelial fan underneath the bark against the wood. So that's kind of a creamy white spread of fungal threads in a mass. It'll be very thin, though, and that's characteristic of that particular organism as well. And then the other thing to watch for are the little root-like rhizomorphs that are formed that are kind of the structures that grow out into the soil 
and those are what will eventually come into contact with other roots and cause additional infection. Are you seeing a real rapid decline? No, it's a situation where there were four young white pines planted, but it's near a downspout from a building, and one died, then another one died, now another one's looking not so good. And so I'm suspecting that it's got to do with so much moisture, but whether it's our malaria or just some other kind of root rot maybe, Mm -hmm. but the one that's the last one there now is kind of off color and it's not a pH issue. So I think it's something to do with a root rot of some kind going Mm -hmm. on in there. It's just not the right plant in the right place kind of thing, but I was just wondering what the symptoms of our malaria are. Eventually you will see those mushrooms that will form, so I would definitely watch for those in the vicinity of those trees if it is our malaria. On those older trees, are they still in place and dead? I think there's maybe one there that's fallen over. Then I would double-check under the bark and see if you can see any evidence of a mycelial fan. And if you're not quite certain, just peel off the bark and then take some photos and send them to me, and I can take a look at that. The other thing, there are some insects, and if PJ's on, he can comment on those that might cause some decline as well. So there could be other things that are going on. It could be a combination of root rots or armillaria and then an insect that's coming in and finishing the job off. Okay. I'll check with them. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Any other questions for Brian? Okay, let's move on then. PJ, are you on? I am here, yes. It's been quite a while, but I am around today. A couple of the bigger stories at the moment. Insect-wise, magnolia scale has been a big story this summer. Definitely a lot of cases coming in for that. When it comes to controlling that, timing is everything, and we are getting right to that point of the year where the vulnerable juveniles, which we call crawlers, are leaving the adult scales, they hang out underneath them and they start wandering around. And a week ago at the Arboretum here in Madison, we were doing an arborist walk and lecture at the same time, and we could pluck some of these scales off. And if you hold them in your hands, you see the little brown dots starting to move. So typically late August to about first half of September is the time when we can go out with some contact sprays if needed and take care of those. If you had a really aggressive case, you could go out again early next spring with a dormant oil to help clean things up in addition. But we're right at that point in the season where, at least in the Madison area, crawlers are starting to move. If you're farther up north, they're going to be a little bit behind or closer to the lake. But you can go out pretty easily and pluck some of those magnolia scales off and see if those little brownish dots are starting to move. Another thing that is starting to pop up, fall webworms. This is a caterpillar species that makes tents in trees. The tents are usually out towards the tips of branches. I've had maybe a handful of cases come in. Most of them are fairly minor, an occasional branch with a tent here and one there. Although just earlier this week, Mike Hillstrom from the DNR sent me a picture, and I don't have an exact location in the state, but there were a couple of acres that had been defoliated by fall webworms. So that is just an outbreak situation. We're also at the time of the year, I'm sure folks are getting a lot of calls on wasps and yellow jackets because their colonies have built up in size and are getting to be about peak size at this point. I do want to mention for wasps and yellow jackets, I have worked with my counterparts, Jeff Hahn in Minnesota and another colleague from Iowa as well to revise the multi-state wasp yellow jacket and bee fact sheet and that was just posted about a week or two ago so if you did an internet search for 
University of Minnesota WASP control fact sheet or something along those lines, you should be able to find it. I'm an author on there as well. It's for the most part about the same information as what had been on there. And Phil Pelletier had been an author in the past, but we've updated a few things and added some more pictures. So I just wanted folks to know that that is available. Other than that, a few other things popping up. Spotted wing drosophila is still trickling, and I'm getting cases from here and there. For some indoor pests, there is strawberry root weevil. These are a dark brownish weevil that will wander indoors. They accidentally do this. They can't live indoors, survive indoors for any length of time, so it's a dead end for them. Really what you need to do for those is vacuum them up or sweep them up if they get in. If you have a major problem with them, inspecting the exterior of the home to check for cracks and crevices where they may be sneaking into or making sure weather stripping on doors and windows and those things are sealing properly is going to be the biggest management approach for those. We really don't have to spray. And then just a heads up, Around this time of the year, and I've started getting a few cases in about the last week and a half, there is a very tiny beetle called a foreign grain beetle. They're kind of a reddish-brown color, maybe about an eighth-inch long top, so they are very tiny insects. What's unusual about these insects is they have a very strong association with brand-new homes or homes where an addition had put on or there had been some type of major renovation. The reason for that is... During the construction process, the 2x4 framing is up. There's going to be a little bit of residual moisture in the wood, but also rain can fall onto the framing, and you get a little bit of inert mold that grows on the wood. Well, these insects are fungal feeders, so they come in, they hang out on the wood, and then drywall and siding get slapped up, and those insects are inside the wall void. So in August and in September is usually the peak for cases for these, at least what I saw last year. These insects start wandering out into the homes. They can show up in odd locations, kitchens, bathrooms, bedrooms, all over the place. The insects aren't going to harm anything in the house, but it can be very alarming for brand-new homeowners to not expect any insects because it's a brand-new house, but these things start wandering out. The good news is that once those wall voids dry out, the insects are going to disappear on their own, so it's really something that just needs to run its course, but just a general heads up that you may start seeing cases of foreign grain beetle in the near future if you haven't had any yet. So that's all that I have for my insect report. Are there any questions for me? PJ, this is Kristen. Just so you know, my house is eight years old now, and I still have these little buggers all over the place. Oh, wow. Um, but that is what it is. I was never worried about them. But, yeah, we still get dozens of them. Mostly they're killed by the little spiders in the corner, and they're stuck in their webs. That's not a housekeeping issue. I live in the country. But my other question is, is so down by me, it's been really, really dry. How does that affect the pollinator colonies? I know this sounds silly, but should I be putting water out for them? If it does get really dry, I have heard of some recommendations of putting water out so that bees and other pollinators can get a drink because they do need water. If they don't have readily available water, I've heard of them going to bird baths, swimming pools, and swimming pools can't be great for them because it's chlorinated and just other sources of water. So if it was really dry, you could go ahead and put a pan or dish of water near the flower bed, and that would certainly help them out. So I'm guessing that needs to be somewhat shallow because I know my kids have water tables and we leave those out we end up with all sorts of dead pollinators in there. You may not know this, but is there a depth that I'm worried about? I haven't heard any research specifically on that. I would imagine if you had something pretty shallow, though, that would help prevent any accidental drownings in the water. 
Okay. I'm getting a little over the top by getting water for my bees, so I'll let real questions take the stage. Any other questions for PJ? Okay. Do we have any other specialists online? Well, then, thank you, Brian and PJ, for your updates and for answering our questions. And I would like to welcome Mark Dwyer. He's the Director of Horticulture at Rotary Botanical Gardens in Janesville. And he's going to talk with us on butterfly gardening. And I know Brian sent out a copy of Mark's presentation, so you can look at the beautiful pictures if you want to follow along on that. So welcome, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. I will say, in passing, if you haven't been to the gardens yet this year in Janesville, please visit. We're just a smidge past peak, but we have a great red, yellow, and orange color theme. We have our jungle garden is back, our Thomas Jefferson collection. We have a smelly garden. So a lot of great themes going on, or certainly check out my blog at a later date just to see some of the great things that are blooming and happening at the gardens. I'm going to dive right into the presentation. And, of course, butterfly gardening, uh, I've given talks on this topic that are hours long and touching on some of the basics that, of course, many of us know. The idea that there's certain plants that will attract butterflies. We have to include the larval stage of many of these butterflies. I think we all know the milkweed connection to monarchs in examples such as that. But making our gardens not only butterfly-friendly but pollinator-friendly becomes important. We've had some visitors saying, well, they haven't seen many butterflies this year, and, and we find that odd simply because we see a bumper crop. We have oodles of monarchs, lots of yellow swallowtails, a lot of butterflies I could never identify, but we feel we're doing something right, at least with our minimal chemical use plan and also providing certainly lots of flowers. So slide one in our presentation here, there's swallowtail and South American verbena, which is certainly a plant that offers an attractive landing spot and nectar for these butterflies. Next image, some interesting factoids. Uh, addressing pollinators here, the idea that pollinators providing an important service for our plants in terms of certainly the pollination, but the number of pollinators in an area is indicative of the health of that system, and that includes bees and our other pollinators. And it's in those heavily manicured areas where there's a lot of spraying going on and a lot of chemical use that's not properly thought out or maybe overdone, where there's very little diversity with our pollinators, and that includes butterflies. We get a lot of questions from people saying, hey, what can I spray in my yard to get rid of Japanese beetles or other critters? And we warn them the implications of many of these chemicals also will affect our beneficials and our other pollinators. Next image, diversifying your garden plantings becomes important in getting away from these sterile corporate landscapes. The image on the left is at Rotary Gardens where there's a wide range of flowers, not only colors but shapes and forms, and many that we select specifically because we know they'll attract butterflies or hummingbirds. Native plantings certainly are something to consider. And my third point on that image is limit or ideally eliminate pesticide use. At Rotary Gardens, we're very reactive with sprays. It's actually the last thing we do. There's way too many people that feel they're being proactive by just blanketing their yards with spray, and that's certainly not good for the majority of our butterflies. Next image, considering your flowers, there's another swallowtail and a purple cone flower. You know, the timing and sequence of blooms. You can be attracting butterflies really, in essence, late May, early June, all the way through summer. So having a progression of blooms certainly makes shape uh, sense. Mixing up flower architecture, the shapes and forms, is not only a beautiful way to create a garden, but also many of those forms lend themselves to attracting certain butterflies. Uh, the colors of blue, yellow, red, and violet can be very attractive, keeping in mind that many of our insects see in a different color spectrum. And our urban gardens, with a high diversity of plantings, really attract a lot of pollinators. And they're finding studies in these large urban centers. And it makes sense to all of us. These green spaces are where we're finding the wildlife and the pollinators, etc., because other locations in these urban centers are just not conducive for that. 
Next image, a great shot of cut flowers I took. This was actually uh, around the square in Madison. Cut flowers, so absolutely beautiful. But here's just an example of the wide range of not only colors, but flower shapes and forms that can be included in the landscape. So next image, flower considerations. You don't need a lot of space. And when people talk about gardening for butterflies, it can be as simple as a small container. And that might be the way to start. But of course, plant selection becomes important. I alluded to native plants earlier. It's interesting to note that native selections are four times more attractive to our pollinators. And I'm going to show you some non-native plants that just have a high nectar content that certainly will attract butterflies. And I call them slam dunk annuals. And that's a lot of what we have in our garden that are really bringing in those monarchs and swallowtails right now. In the larval food sources, we'll talk about that. And I had alluded to milkweed, but many of these butterflies, to keep them happy, it's not just about providing food, providing a place for them to lay eggs and, in essence, get the next generation going. Next image, just some eye candy here. Who doesn't enjoy seeing butterflies? And here, swallowtail on uh, Budlia. Next image, a little more about flower considerations. The colors and shapes and fragrances evolve with flowers, not for human enjoyment, it's for our pollinators. Those flowers want to reproduce, so, of course, being attractive to two pollinators makes sense. So, again, the shape is very important for maximizing these chances of pollination. Next image, that's Mexican sunflower with swallowtail, and that's the plant I'll show a little bit later, but in our big yellow, orange, and red theme I mentioned, we have this Tithonia or Mexican sunflower this year that's 8 to 10 feet tall, and it's literally carpeted with monarchs and swallowtails right now. And with the native range being down in northern Mexico and Central America, it's certainly something that will attract our butterflies as well. Next image, another butterfly and zinnia. A great combination. Zinnias will attract a wide range of pollinators. Next image, beautiful shot of a monarch on that verbena benariensis, which again, that's not one flower. You're seeing a cluster of dozens of flowers, and that butterfly is working over each and every one of those. Next image. That's a shot of our chemical cabinet, and I'm happy to say that the door creaks when we open it because we use very few chemicals and pesticides. So avoid the use of non-selectives if you can, because again, it's taking out a wide range. Maybe your target insects are being taken care of, but many others might be affected as well. If you do have to use them, use the most selective and least toxic options, and certainly try to avoid spraying flowers. Some of you might recall the talk about bees. It was a couple years ago out west where some linden trees in full bloom were sprayed at a Target store, and it was those neonicotinoids and dropped 50,000 bees instantly. And a lot of hullabaloo about that, I think that's understandable. So, again, knowing the proper use and implications of your pesticide use. Next image, just to play on words here, really try to stop using those chemicals. And we've done that at Rotary Garden to a certain extent and, again, are very reactive with anything we might need to do. Next image, sharing our pollinators paradise. Our children's garden the past two years, I should mention, was pollinator-friendly. And lots of different plants, perennials, woody plants, a lot of seasonals with the intent of bringing in pollinators. And it was exciting to see the wide range that came in, including butterflies. Next image, same garden, but we're using some elevated repurposed plastic containers that we built ourselves with the intent of providing these safe landing areas for the butterflies, but also excellent for observation. And as a design element, also, I think, fairly effective as a vertical planter. Next image, again, more plants, and back to diversity, that garden had almost 200 different types of plants over the last two years. Next image, again, more plants in combination, and we were certainly trying to attract bees, hummingbirds, and just about any pollinator that was willing to venture in there. We always find it odd when visitors come in and they comment, and, boy, there's a lot of bees out there, and we always say, yeah, that's great, that's what we're trying to do. And the comments this year about butterflies have been very favorable. And again, a lot of the plants we'll show you shortly are effective. 
next image, there's the Merdekia in the lower right of the image, and that yellow flowering plant is called popcorn cassia. And oddly enough, it's in our smelly garden right now because it smells like buttered popcorn, very fragrant. And it also attracts a wide range of bees and butterflies. So here's a tropical plant we're using just in our Wisconsin summer, but also effective for our pollinators. And the next image shows the same plant as well, in tandem with a lot of other good seasonals and perennials. So the next image is labeled planting diversity. This is a late summer image. There's Veronicastrum in the back right as the white upright plant, Helenium in the lower right, the Monarda. The comment here is, this is diversity in terms of genera. There's a lot of different types of perennials here, but your diversity should also run the spectrum of bloom times. So diverse plantings that run the spectrum of bloom throughout the season. I couldn't ever take this image in May or June or October simply because this is a very specific late summer shot. And I think that makes sense to all of us. Next image, a nice shoreline planting at the Chicago Botanic Garden with hibiscus, Joe pieweed, and butterflies were all over the place, as were the bees. A great planting, primarily with natives. Next image, taken at Oldbrook Botanic Gardens with Veronica, catmint, lots of good stuff. And no one would argue it's not beautiful, but this also is quite attractive to our pollinators and certainly butterflies. And another image of our pollinator's paradise, again, last year. So let's jump into some annuals. You're seeing one of our big annual beds. This year we're displaying about 150,000 annuals. We do about 900 varieties each year, and they're not all necessarily being visited by butterflies, but we do focus heavily on the zinnias and the verbenas and the plants I'll show you very shortly that we know will bring in these butterflies because with our education programs, it's so exciting, and we remember years where we saw very few butterflies. And as those populations fluctuate, it's very important for us to be in tandem with our neighbors and teach our visitors about the importance of attracting these pollinators and these butterflies. And certainly we hear a lot of press about monarchs, but certainly there's a lot of butterflies out there. I'm certainly no expert. Next comment, some considerations. For your seasonals, there's a lot of time and money involved. You have to keep them happy. In dry summers, there's the watering, extending their interest, making sure they look good through the season. So consider the use in containers and how they can be used in tandem with other plants. We call them eye candy at Rotary Gardens because there is a lot of work involved, but the color is impactful and the pollinators, including butterflies, seem to enjoy them. So on to a slam dunk annual for your butterflies, particularly monarchs and swallowtails. The South American verbena is excellent. Lots and lots of blooms over a long period of time. The warning is that they reseed prolifically, so watch out. But the bloom time is over three months and they're just covered with butterflies. So this patch here, as beautiful as it was, the implications were the 100,000 seeds that dropped off of this and the fact that we're still weeding them out. Next image, just a nice close-up of a monarch on that same Verbena venariensis. Very easy to grow. Next image, again, this is selling the fact that the plant is in constant visitation by these butterflies. Next image is another seasonal, and I alluded to Tithonia, the Mexican sunflower. Torch is a variety that typically gets six to seven feet tall, it's huge this year for us. It's not sold a lot in garden centers simply because it's not blooming until normally late July, early August. So it's a late season bloomer, but beautiful, brilliant orange blossoms and certainly, again, another slam dunk. If I were to be asked what annual do we have that attracts the most monarchs, the answer would be Tithonia. And right now, next, you're seeing the image of a monarch on Tithonia. Next image, same deal. And it's a swirling mass of monarchs right now on these plants. And the next image is just showing the fact that bees will certainly visit as well. With torch getting quite large, I'm showing the next image of Fiesta del Sol, which is a compact variety at three feet tall. So Tithonia has also run the range of the yellow. So it's a great annual for full sun. And again, I can guarantee you butterflies on these. Next image, Ageratum or Flossflower. Another very common annual, but excellent for a wide range of butterflies. 
It runs in the pinks, whites, and blues, but high tide blue being a taller variety, great in the full sun garden. Next image, Gallardias. Many of our Gallardias are annuals or short-lived perennials, but long bloom time, these will go all the way till frost. And these horizontal platforms, they talk about flower architecture, but many of these flatter composites are excellent landing platforms for butterflies. And Gallardia is no exception. And you can think of many others, Shasta daisies, the Sithonia you saw earlier. So again, this flower architecture certainly lends itself to a visit. Next image, salvias. Salvias are wonderful for butterflies and certainly excellent for hummingbirds as well. And Summer Jewel Red is a great variety at 18 inches tall. Long bloom time certainly can be cut back. If you go to the next image, you'll see a hummingbird working its way into one of these. And again, that trumpet-shaped bloom lends itself certainly to visits by hummingbirds, but butterflies you can certainly visit as well. Next image, it runs in pink. You see Summer Jewel Pink, and it's now in a white. So salvias, in essence, whether they're perennial or annual like these, have a lot of merit for our pollinators. Next image, another salvia that's extremely popular for butterflies and certainly hummingbirds, black and blue. And this uh, salvia gornitica, which is Brazilian sage. The comment about this, we're not really talking about hummingbirds as many times as I've referenced them, but this is probably our number one hummingbird, seasonal. And we plant them by the hundreds and we're rewarded. The ruby-throated hummingbirds are working these over pretty good. Agastache or agastache, the next image, bolero, great for a wide range of pollinators, and many of these are now zone 5 hardy. So depending on where you live, you may get these to overwinter. But great research and development in these agastaches, which I think have a lot of merit. Fragrant foliage and excellent in the full sun border. Keep in mind the plants I'm showing you are barely scratching the surface of those that will attract your butterflies. Next image, a golden leaf, golden jubilee agastache, blue flowers, fragrant foliage, lots and lots of butterflies. The only warning here is that this will be visited by hundreds of bees, and if you have an allergy to bee stings, there's a large population that will be working this over at peak bloom time. But certainly gorgeous, as you can see in that image. Next image, Rebeccias. Rebeccias, whether they're annual, like Indian summer, or perennial, certainly, again, great platforms for visitation by butterflies. And Indian summer is one of the largest in terms of flower size. This has a two-and-a-half-month bloom period as well. And at 36 inches high, excellent in the full sun border. And the next image shows another favorite of mine, and that's prairie sun with a green center. And notice those petals kind of fade to a white on the edges. So again, some great plants. Can't go wrong with cosmos in the next image. Last year, we did a cosmos collection of 50 or 60 varieties, ranging from heights of 12 inches up to 7 or 8 feet. Truly amazing. Including the sulfur cosmos, cosmos sulfurious, that run the reds, oranges, and yellows. Lots and lots of butterflies. Happy Ring was one of our many selections, but certainly popular for the butterflies. And I've alluded to zinnias in the next image, sally yellow flame, beautiful to the human eye, also quite attractive to our butterflies. In the next image, zinnia with a swallowtail. In the next image, just talking about containers. Again, when people want to have a friendly garden for butterflies, I immediately mention the pesticide thing. That's important. But when they feel they're limited on space, you bring up the fact that a container can certainly host a wide range of plants. I took this photo in Vail, Colorado, and these three containers, just about everything that's in them would be attractive to butterflies. Briefly, next image, perennials. You're seeing some yarrow, purple coneflowers, some daylilies. Again, our perennials, great in terms of compositional use. You have to consider the bloom time, the flower architecture, and their longevity becomes important. In the next image, you see some echinacea. This is Cheyenne spirit. If you actually bump to the next image, you see a bigger clump of it. This is a hybrid, so it's a seed-grown strain with a lot of different variability. We've all seen the crazy breeding in Echinaceas, but in essence, a native plant that was not super popular 30 years ago is now this poster child for color in the summer, but it's also excellent for our pollinators and certainly butterflies. 
the next image. Not all of us have the space to put in sombrero flamenco orange like this, this huge patch I saw at the Balti Trial Gardens just about a month ago, but the butterflies were all over it. Unfortunately, they're not seen in this image, but what an impressive patch. Next image, Powwow Wildberry, just, again, one of the two to 300 varieties that are out there now. And why not go with a native species? In the next image, you see Echinacea paradoxa, the yellow cone flower, more of a shuttlecock look, but again, butterflies will certainly find purchase on top of those and check them out. And don't neglect Ritechias. In the next image, little gold star is one of many with a long bloom period. Some of these can get a little vigorous in wetter soil, so know your plants. That's important. But selecting those with a long bloom time and so many of these composites that I've shown you have merit for many of our more common butterflies, without a doubt. And Coriopsis, the grub being one of many. In the next image, Lightning Flash, a tall chick seed at four to five feet with golden foliage. Lightning Flash here will bring in plenty of those butterflies. The next image is Centranthus or Jupiter's Beard. Dynamite for fragrance, blue foliage, and a great attractant for a lot of these butterflies. Next image, Shasta daisies, a nice pure white. My only warning with Shasta daisies is watch out for the receding, which can be prolific. But that pure white is beautiful and something that would certainly illuminate the garden and also be great for your butterflies. And moving on to a perennial agastache, this blue fortune a massive clump at the Chicago Botanic Garden, visited again by lots of bees, but the butterflies were working this over, and in the upper right you see Joe Pieweed, which is also quite attractive. So here's some mass plantings of perennials that'll be quite effective. If you go to the next image, you can't go wrong with yarrow, and as a cultural thing, when your yarrow peters out in midsummer, cut it down to the ground, let it regenerate, and you get a clean plant, frequently a rebloom. But Pretty Belinda is one of Richard Hockey's favorites out of his Chicago Botanic Garden trial, and just a great pink and a great platform. Next image, sedums. Many of our sedums are really going into peak bloom right now, catching the late summer pollinators, the butterflies, the bees. These stone crops like leaner soils. They don't need rich soils. And Matrona is a great one with brune foliage and these pink clusters. In the next image, garden flocks at peak bloom right now with fragrant flowers. David, an award winner for many years ago, certainly select mildew-resistant varieties, but great for a wide range of pollinators, as are all the plants I'm showing. If you want a little oomph with your foliage, go to the next image and you'll see shockwaves. Variegated foliage, so the contribution of color from foliage is from emergence to hard frost. You're getting peak flowering right now. And don't go wrong with monardas. The bee balm, excellent for a wide range of pollinators. Certainly hummingbirds will be on these. This mint relative, be careful. They do colonize, create a good grouping. And if you're getting mildew problems, what we'll do in midsummer is cut our monarda way back after the first flush of blooms and get brand new foliage. And Jacob Pine is one of the great red varieties. The next image, Purple Rooster, is out of the Flower Factory Nursery. That's an introduction in Stilton, Wisconsin, and that's sold nationwide now, but a very unique shade of purple and very mildew resistant as well. And Veronica's next image, Red Fox. I could go on and on, but very upright blooms, so an excellent architecture, and those butterflies don't mind landing and working it sideways. In the next image, pure silver Veronica, whitish foliage, long bloom period with the blue. And I think a slam dunk perennial in the next image, any of the liatris, the metal blazing stars, the gay feathers, whatever you want to call them. Spicata's been around a long time as summer bloomers. In our pollinator's paradise, these were the most frequented perennials that we had with the liatris. Cobalt in the next image has been around forever, just a compact form, but there were a lot more species that I never knew of, and we had a lot of success. If you go to the next image, Pycnostachia, one of the tall metal blazing stars at almost four feet tall, and Ligulosilus in the next image. Look at the monarchs on that. I couldn't find it, but we had a picture of this Liatris with six monarchs on it at a time. Four to five feet, though, so you have to take into account the size. 
And if you prefer white in the next image, go with Alba. And why not a big grouping you'll see in the next image? You're dedicating a lot of space to one plant. This was at Van Dusen Gardens in Vancouver, but holy smokes were the butterflies on that. And lavender in the next image, if you can grow it and you have good drainage, certainly excellent for a wide range of our butterflies. And as we had in the late season, the next image, you get into anemones like Honorine Jobert, bloom times from August almost till early October, little lemon solidago or goldenrod, a compact form at 18 inches, beautiful. Fireworks in the next image, 36 inches tall, arcing sprays, so a September bloomer that's accommodating your pollinators, your bees, your butterflies, and certainly asters, vibrant dome being one of many, and focus on those mildew-resistant asters. Late on favorite, an October bloomer in the next image, and if you pan down to the next image, you see a monarch. I took this image in very late September. So those larval food sources, the next image, you see a monarch caterpillar on milkweed, Know those larval host plants and include them in a pollinator's paradise and knowing that they're going to be nibbled on, and that's important to consider. A lot of these monarch way stations and the promotion of planting milkweed in our home gardens, I think, has a lot of merit. And instead of people spraying and killing milkweed, they need to understand its importance. In the next image, there's common milkweed, and we leave it just about everywhere we can in the prairie. And certainly you could focus on some of the more ornamental types like butterfly weed, Asclepias tuberosa in the next image, and a close-up with a bee in the center there of that beautiful perennial. Very tough. There's also a yellow form. Next image, parsley. Some of our common herbs accommodate many of the caterpillars of our butterflies. Next image, anethum. That's dill. Dill is excellent. And you'll see caterpillars on dill. You may see a swallowtail caterpillar in the next image. That's at my home garden, nibbling on dill. And fennel, funiculum, in the next image. Also equally attractive. So many of these herbs have our use in the kitchen, but also the larval stage. Briefly, some woody plants, budlia, certainly can attract a wide range. In warmer climates, it's a reseeding nightmare, so there's a huge focus on seedless budlias. Next image, there's budlia with a butterfly. Cheriopteris, Loomis pyrea. Excellent late-season bloomer. Lots of bees, but certainly the tail end of many of our butterflies. And water is vital. Now, you're seeing a bird bath, but keep in mind, pollinators need to hydrate as well. So mud puddles, and I'll describe the idea of wetting an open portion of sand or soil, allows them to sip and do their thing. Make sure you have stones and some way to access this water so it's not too deep. Change water and sterilize it. There's a next image of bird bath with a little safety station in the middle, so critters of different types essentially won't drown. And the next image, there's mud puddles and swallowtails rehydrating. So summary for success, next image. Designed for that succession of blooms, larval host plants. Again, we mentioned minimal or no pesticide use and the value of native plantings. One more image, another summary skipping those pesticides, having water, and more research. And I include a website here, this pollinator.org has excellent information. And some closure slides, next image, there's verbena with some attentiveness from a butterfly. Next image, some double zinnias with monarch. And I always like to end with a shot of a cute kid, and it's so important for us to get involved with kids out in the garden and teaching them about these butterflies and how important they are. And the next image, one of our younger volunteers and our future gardener. With that, I'm going to say thanks. There's an image of, a, I think, a black swallowtail and echinacea, and I'll throw it back at Barb. Thanks very much, Mark, and let's see if we have any questions from anyone. Mark, many of the annuals that you suggested, will they do okay in a semi-shaded area? That's a great question. That's a bit of a challenge because the verbena and the tithonia I mentioned really need full blazing sun. 
there's a lot of perennials that will take part shade and still offer pollinator interest, but we find in our pollinator's paradise, which is 100% full sun, our sun-loving annuals have thrived and done the best. So verbena or chthonia in part sun will still bloom, but it will be stretched out and you'll have a lot less bloom. So hence the challenge of part shade for a lot of what we talked about. Thank you. Hey, Mark. Monarchs and swallowtails kind of get all the press and everything, but what about some of the other smaller butterflies? Obviously, any flower is going to provide the pollen for the adult stage, but isn't it painted ladies feed on nettle or red admirals, one of those two? Like milkweed is specific for monarchs. Are there any other specific things that you know about that we can grow in the gardens for some of the less popular butterflies? I'd have to defer to more research. I have to admit that I found it daunting, number one, finding out how many actual types of butterflies would visit southern Wisconsin. And then looking up those larval host plants was unbelievable. And a great example would be like spicebush swallowtail. The larval host plant is Lindera benzoian, the spicebush. And that's something we certainly can grow. But the question is, do you dedicate the space to a woody plant of that size in the hopes that mama's going to lay eggs on it? And I don't want to simplify those associations, but I don't believe I'm knowledgeable enough to recommend anything specific. But there's research out there, and I imagine there's other extension resources that might be more helpful. Okay, thanks. Do you have any other questions for Mark? Okay, not hearing any. Mark, thanks very much, and thanks for joining us. And we really appreciate you sharing your beautiful photos and experience in butterfly gardening and attracting butterflies and other pollinators. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so let's finish our horticulture update with any announcements. Next week is Wisconsin Farm Tech Days out of Dane County. So if you have Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday open and want to come and see lots and lots of big farm machinery and other cool stuff, including a lot of extension folks, head out to Farm Tech Days. Any other announcements? If not, thank you, everyone, for joining us this morning. Next week, Jane Anklum is the host. She's in Douglas County. Our topic is Breeding Tasty Vegetables. And Julie Dawson, who's our urban and regional food production specialist, will be our guest speaker. So thanks all, and have a great weekend.